And we are live on this episode of the podcast. We are joined by a player who has played in English League One, the English Championship, and the English Premier League. He has also represented the Welsh national team, which reached the semifinals in Euro 2016, David Cottrell. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. How's everything on your end? Yeah, very good. I think... um... Obviously, with the situation that we're in now, but I don't want to go into too much detail because I'm fed by talking about it. But yeah, I'm all good. I'm, my children are healthy. I'm healthy. That's the most important thing. That's one of those things that I look at now where it's health is the primary um, you know, factor and, and variable in happiness. So um, exactly. look, you've had a fascinating career relative to a lot of other footballers. Um, you've played for some top clubs. You've achieved a lot in your career. So from my perspective, you know, you've been at the highest level. You've competed at an extremely high level. Um, and I want to congratulate you on that. I also want to congratulate you on coming out of retirement after two years, um, which I feel like a lot of players, once you're out uh, a year, two years, it's very difficult to come back. So congratulations on that. Um, I want to get... Um, into the background of your playing career before we tie in um, the main conversation um, because I feel like a lot of players deal with what you dealt with um, and uh, I want to lead into it based on things you've dealt with in your career. So I'm going to ask a very broad question. Let's get into your career. Let's talk about the clubs you've played for because I didn't mention that in the introduction Um, and then Let's go into a few of the clubs that have had a lasting impact on your career. Maybe some of the bigger ones that you've played for relative to, you know, maybe players, management, how the club is run. Um, I'll leave that up to you. So let's talk about the clubs that that you've played for uh, throughout your career. Yeah, so um, I started playing um football but you call it soccer you no know, we'll use football um, with you that's why i we'll wanted use, to make sure yeah, i we'll call it footballer and yeah. Um, yeah so with um i started playing football when i was six years of age and then by the age of 10 i first got picked up for bristol city who's my first professional club so from then i was training um every day even when i was not in the football club i still continued to practice because without anything in life unless you practice you're not going to go very far especially as an athlete so um, that's why I focused on the main focus is that when I was 14 um, you know I had big clubs like Man United and um, Arsenal Chelsea they all wanted to sign me as, as a young kid but I chose to stay at Bristol City because I I felt that I practiced so hard and I was looking at the first team players um, in that team and I thought there's not I'm not too far away of being better than them and I'll be in the first team before you know it Sure. and so that choice would prove to be right because um, I made my first team debut when I was 16. Um, I was like the second ever youngest player to represent Bristol City at that time. And then um, things uh, really quickly progressed, really. I had Then I made my Welsh debut when I was 17, and I became the youngest ever player for Wales for a short period of time. So that's how my professional um, career started. I think a lot of people say, you know, even with Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo, big big stars is that they say they're overnight success but I always say when you practice from the age of 6 to 16 or 17 that's taken a lot many years of hard work for sure so um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of commitment and um, 
sacrifice that you make to become an athlete and a football player, as we all know in life. But um, so yeah, that's when I started. I made my debut for Bristol City. Um, played for Wales very early on in, in my career, and I think that just um, gave me the boost of confidence that I needed to then take my my um, career to the next level. When I decided to um, sign for Wigan Athletic when I was seventeen, mm-hmm. um, which was they were in the Premier League, so it was a huge jump, a jump because Bristol City were in League One. Um, so I wasn't just climbing just one one division, uh, one league, if you like, and then it was just literally straight into the Premier League. As a young kid, it's, it's very intimidating because you're playing against, um, you know, huge stars like Cristiano Ronaldo in the Premier League. So you've gone from playing, um, you know, playing in front of like maybe say ten to fifteen thousand people to then playing in seventy thousand people. So it was sure. a huge jump. What? Let me get in. Let me ask you one thing while we're on the topic in your early days of your career. What's it yeah. like being a teenager in a club like that? And what's your approach have to be like? to be successful because there are a lot of teenagers that get signed at a very young age 16 17 years old and they're playing against grown men professionals that have been in the club or have had careers for you know five ten years um what's that challenge like and how do you need to approach um you know your business when you go in you know to training and into games i think my approach was even from like such a a young age, it's even when I was 14, 15, my dad would always say to me that you've practiced so hard to be in the first team, don't be afraid to tell these older guys what you want them to do because you're there on merit as well. So you've worked hard for this. Mm-hmm. So don't let anyone don't let anyone bully you into thinking any different. Um, so that was my mentality. I went into the first team at such a young age and I thought, well, my mentality was still that I'm fucking better than you guys, basically, is what my mentality was. I think, like, I'm going to show you what I can do because I'm better than you and I want to take your place soon. That was literally my focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that I practiced and I trained so hard that no one was going to take that away from me. So when I was training with these guys, the older um, professionals, on a daily basis, um, I felt that I had more, I had just as much right to be in that first team as they, as they did. And if they told me something, I would hold my ground and tell them to fuck off because I knew that I worked so hard to be there. For sure. So you've played, I I was looking, you played 60-something games before what age for Bristol City? Um, I played like, um, that was just over the, before the age of 18, I played 60-odd games for Bristol City. So like that's a lot of games where they're promising teenagers, you know, at 16, 17 that are signed that don't come close to those amount of games and then, you know, their career falls apart because of maybe distractions or um, you know other variables in their life where they don't get the opportunity to continue to progress uh, like I said for whatever reason and I'm sure you've played with players like that you've seen players like that in their in uh, in your career throughout your career why do you think that happens because I feel like you have a lot of experience and can speak on behalf of this where you've been uh, you were successful as a teenager and you established yourself as a pro. But there are so many players that come through and sign for clubs at, you know, 16, 17, 18 years old that then, you know, fall apart and they don't progress into their 20s or 30s in their in their career. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's it's, it's just it's crazy, really, because I recently went about two years ago, I went back to Bristol City and I seen one of my old coaches there, but he's at actually 80 years of age he was an old coach when he brought me through mm-hmm. and 
the players who were a couple of years older than me um, were in the first team, and they made they maybe made one or two professional appearances, but they literally thought that they made it and they were the big deal right. straight away. I think you can get sucked into thinking you're better than you actually are, and then you start lo- losing focus from what you set out to be. Mm-hmm. And and one of the guys who made one or two appearances in the first team, his life completely changed because he then went into distraction of of drugs. Um, then he was he was actually in, he's I think he's in prison or he w- did go to prison. And it just mm-hmm. goes to show that your life can completely change if you don't stay focused on what you want to do. Um, and it it's, it's extremely hard to get there. And you always hear the the top athletes always say it's extremely hard to get there, but it's even harder to stay at the top. For sure. So. And I think that's that's the thing. I made my made my debut, and my focus was that I worked so hard, but I wasn't just really happy about playing League One or just making that first team. I wanted to push on, and my my dream was always to play um, in the Premier League. Mm-hmm. So let's go through some of these clubs that you've. Let's just go through your career, right, of the clubs that you played for, and then let's dive into you know some of the clubs I know that you've played Premier League Championship. Maybe we can talk about uh, what the environment is like at a championship club that's pushing for promotion and what that season yeah. is like and how demanding it is and, and you know what goes on on a day-to-day basis in the club. Um, so let's run through the clubs that you've played for because it is quite a bit. Um, sure. And then wherever you feel like going into, we can get into that. Yeah, so if I, if I miss any clubs out, you might have to correct me. So it was Bristol, Bristol City. Um, Wigan Athletic, Sheffield United, Swansea City, um, Barnsley, I think it was. I have uh, that Portsmouth. as well. Yeah, Portsmouth. Yeah, Portsmouth. Yeah, um, Doncaster Rovers, um, Birmingham City, um, Bristol City back again on loan, but that's the same club. Um, but things completely changed from the first time around, and Kolkata. ATK Kolkata, which was in India, right. and I've recently come out of retirement to play part-time football in uh, Bytown United. Yeah, so real quick, let's touch on that since it's recent, and I made that note yeah. earlier in the podcast. So that's a professional or semi-professional league in Wales that you're playing for. Yeah, so it's, yeah, so it's semi-professional, and it's it's the Welsh Premier. It's in the Welsh Premier League. Um, which is, yes, part-time football, so it's, it's semi-professional. So the reason why I decided to come out of retirement was because I, had, I kept on seeing the manager, and he was like, look, you look in great shape in the gym, you look fit, come and play play for me. And it was it was just, we were having on um, discussions for literally about a year, and my mind wasn't in it. I didn't want to get back to playing football anymore mm. um, because I enjoyed my career, but towards the back end of it, I didn't enjoy it as much, and my heart wasn't in it anymore. I just thought, if my heart's not in it, I'm not having fun. I didn't want to continue to play. So I then decided after that, well, I might as well. My cousin's on the team. I thought I'd enjoy the experience, and that's why I just started to play, because I could still continue to do what I'm doing um, outside of football and supporting people with mental health. Sure. Yeah. so it's interesting. I was going to ask why you came out of retirement. I'm glad you, you touched on it. So um, the, the clubs, um, Premier League, I don't have the list of which ones were in the Premier yeah. League when you were playing. Um, I don't have the list of championship clubs. Which direction do you want to go? What the environment is like in a Premier League club that, you know, is trying to stay up in the league? 
because you know based on the leagues uh, or the teams that you played for in the league and correct me if I'm wrong are all clubs that were trying to stay up they weren't clubs that were established that were you know fighting for the league title so what's that like yeah, yeah. do I have that wrong go ahead and correct me if I'm wrong sorry no that's no that's correct so when I signed for Wigan they actually um they were a good club and they were trying, they established themselves in the Premier League for one or two seasons. Then I joined them. Um, and it was really difficult. The Premier League is, is the most difficult league in the world because ev- anyone can beat anyone, you know, but the, mm-hmm. the, the stakes, the stakes are so high. Stay in the Premier League is cost the, the football club a lot of money. And there's, you know, there's huge amounts of money for in the industry regarding the Premier League. And it's the most watched league in the world, if, if I'm, uh, correct. For sure. And, yes. That's that's the place where everyone wanted to be, and at the time that I was there as well, I think majority of the best managers and the players were in that league, um, mm-hmm. and I, and it was amazing. It was it's somewhere where, especially such a young kid that I was, really, is that you can get so lost in in lost there because you know unless you have someone to put their arm around you, you kind of think, fuck, you know, what's going on here, and this it's just crazy, really, because. Um, you know, you want to you want to perform where well, you don't have the chances about having that patience. So then maybe then if you're on the bench to come off the bench to to be patient and just gradually grow into that. But because I think where I was at Bristol City for so long uh, for um, for a professional for a short amount of time, which I played sixty odd games in um, in maybe like eighteen months or two years, mm-hmm. because I was having first team football for, uh, from a y- early age. I felt that I should be playing, so I didn't really take me being on the bench very well because I was always used to playing week in week out. So that was a completely different mindset. So when you're playing at Wigan in the Premier League, you're playing against the best players, and you know they're just the best, ath- you know, the best players in terms of ath- athletic um, wise footballers in that league as well everything was just so much different to what I was used to mm-hmm. so I mean look I want to make my my point maybe a little bit clearer too because I don't want to be disrespectful at all because all the clubs that you played for I think any kid that's coming up or most professionals throughout the world would do crazy things to play for a Premier League club and and like you mentioned all those those games are, are super competitive and, and tough and those are the top clubs around the world regardless where you are in the Premier League table those are clubs that everybody dreams of, of playing for most people dream of playing for um, at least um, and then like I mentioned uh, in the intro or earlier in the podcast uh, you know like I said your career from my perspective and relative to other footballers you've been very successful you've played upwards of you know 400 games I think it was when I was preparing for for the podcast so that's a lot of football matches where you know you're lucky most people are lucky to get maybe 50 if they're a pro right even if they get one that's amazing so um, what's it like or what was it like at Wigan at the time when you know you're fighting to to earn a position in the team is it everybody you know on their own clawn for a, a starting spot is the team camaraderie close what is the the locker room environment like and are there you know people doing their own thing or guys connected and looking to work together what's the approach from the players um in Wigan's uh you know in your time at Wigan in specific I think because I was such a young guy is that I went um, to a dressing room where there's, I've seen a lot more um, foreign players there. Where, where at Bristol City, we didn't, we only had maybe 
one or two foreign players mm-hmm. um, in the dressing room. If not, they were all British-based players. So when I went to Wigan, it was all different cultures, all different um, languages being spoken. So I, I think that was um, completely different to me. And in my position was Antonio Valencia as well. So Jeez. when I went there, of, of course, you didn't really expect him to be the success that he was. But when I first went there, I was... Um, they tried to sign me as a striker, but then they started to put me on the wing um, because the manager at the time said I could be, he's seen something in me that I could be as good as Bellamy, Craig Bellamy, basically. I was very quick, okay, um, yeah. I could score goals, and that's where he could see my position. But I've always played on the wing um, for Bristol City's first team. So when I went there, I was actually playing in front of Valencia for a little while. Um and then I wasn't playing week in, week out. And then Valencia obviously then started to take the heights that he did. And I wasn't playing week in, week out. So then that forced my move to go on loan because I didn't want to jeopardise my place in the Welsh national team because you had to be playing week in, week out to be in the national team. For sure. Um, so you think the international aspect had a big piece to play with how maybe groups of players, you know, South American players segregated themselves versus... Uh, or again, not maybe against, but uh, in another direction from the UK-based players and other European players on the team? Do you think that hurt the group or um, was that even the approach? Yeah, I don't think it really, um, it it didn't really, I didn't look at, you know, the South American players and think, well, I didn't feel a part of the team because, you know, maybe three or four of the guys are um, talking because we were all a team. It doesn't matter where you're from. We all want to win together. So I didn't For really sure. feel that that was, um, that didn't take a, an effect on the, on the team at all. I thought it was, um, it was very good and we were all close. Um, obviously it was just different culture base and it's very difficult for the foreign players to come over because, you know, it's extremely different. If you don't, um, speak the language and you're in a uh, completely new surroundings, different food, different, um, even like the, the wrong side of the traffic, you know, is sure. and your family, your family are left her, left home. It's it's very difficult for foreign players to come over. And I think that's what sometimes we forget is um, when you're from that area and they expect you to come over and play and just act normally. It's very difficult for players to do that. Mm-hmm. What? Let's talk about the different demands uh, in terms of Premier League versus Championship. Um, and you've played in both, obviously. What would you say the biggest challenges are or what are the biggest differences uh, amongst the two leagues? In the Championship, there's also very, very good players. But I think in the Premier League, it's the higher level you go up, the more you get punished. So if you make a mistake in the Premier League, within two seconds, the ball is in the back of your net and you've conceded mm-hmm. the goal. Whereas in the Championship, uh, how can I explain it? If you're playing in the Premier League, all the, the players need one chance to score a goal. Right. In the championship, in the championship, they might take two chances to score a goal, and then in League One, they maybe need three or four chances to score a goal. So it's kind of um, they're just more clinical, more ruthless in the Premier League compared to the, any other league. Yeah, that that's definitely a, a valid and, and fair point. You look at that and you see when uh, you know a team comes up and gets promoted, they make one mistake maybe in a game, and uh, a Man City or Liverpool or, or Chelsea United take their one chance and punish them and then it all unravels so it's interesting think, to s- go ahead I think that I think that's 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 like that in most sports though if you mm. look at you know when Tiger Woods is, was at the top of his game he needed you didn't if you give him any little um, insight to to punish you he would punish you and there's no way back it's the same in basketball with LeBron James you give him a little 
taste of it, it's game over before you know. So I think the top athletes really punish you in that respect. So like for some, for an example, like Sheffield United that's come up, right? That's done relatively yeah. well, but had spent a lot of time in the championship the last few years. What, what do you think's made them so successful? Obviously, you haven't been in their locker room recently, but you played for a club like Sheffield United. So I don't know if you still follow them or stay in touch with anybody at the club, but they've been really successful or relatively successful in the Premier League based on results this past year. Um, but they spent you know a handful of years in the championship last year. So Yeah, I think, I think it's... I always um, look at it as that the second season is the most difficult for teams when they come up and get promoted because they're all on a high. They they still got that winning mentality to win week in week out. And I think Sheffield United are doing very well because they've kept to the style of play. And most of the teams in the Premier League would not come up against that kind of style with that formation. So it's very difficult. But I think they have very good players. They have a great um, togetherness, and I think that's what's worked for them. They have a you know great manager who's. Um, done extremely well there and the fans I think that's one of my favourite clubs that I've played for in terms of the fan base as well they're amazing I love playing there um, and I always look out for their results and I think because they have such a togetherness they might not be the best players in the Premier League but they have a close togetherness and they are good players um, but I just think because they're on such a high um, I always feel that the second season will, will um, demand more of them Mm-hmm. So since the podcast, the mainly the listeners are American, right? So they're probably yeah. familiar with uh, Sheffield United since a lot of the Premier League games are on uh, you know, the television here. Let's talk more about the club Sheffield United. You talk about the fans. What's the culture like at the club? Has it changed much since you've been there um, now that they're in the, the Premier League? What was the club uh like when you were there how is it run management um you know community um whatever you want to get into i'm interested and i'm sure some of the listeners are as well um to get an idea of what sheffield united is like um you have, it's been what uh probably 10 years since you've played for them how long since you've played for them yeah probably like 10 years ago yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a long time. Actually, I mean, yeah, ten to twelve years ago was the okay. last time I played for them. It was, to be fair, when I first went there, they had Brian Robson was the manager, so he's obviously an ex-Man United legend. So he was there. Um, Brian Kidd was the assistant manager, which was, of course, um, the assistant manager of uh, Mancini when Man City won the Premier League. So mm-hmm. they had a lot of experience there. The players were mainly Premier League players, to be quite honest, where they were in the Premier League. Um, a couple of seasons before that um, and the manager we then had after that was really hard working demanded a lot but really didn't really have no brain or or tactical knowledge if I would if I'm right if I want to say so myself is that mm-hmm. I didn't really um, understand his philosophy and his, the way he thought about football was completely different to what I thought of football about how I want to pass the ball I want to be able to create chances that way it was really a hard working team that he created which you always have to work hard I get that to, to win any match you have to work and work harder than the other team then your skills come through but it's just completely different to what the way they play now now they get the pass uh, they pass the ball around they're sure. entertaining to watch and at times we were entertaining to watch but not as good as the Sheffield United team because you know they like to pass the ball 
Um, and I felt like we had Kyle Walker at right back, who obviously at Man City now, um, and any younger players that were coming through doing well, they would then eventually get sold on. We had Harry Maguire, who as well was coming through the ranks there. So wow. um, I just felt that it was... Um, we just it, it wasn't the attractive football that they're playing today but in terms of the fans they've always been incredible incredible really they're hard working the fans around there they you know the diehard Sheffield United or Sheffield Wednesday fans so um, in terms of that sense it's always about nice to have the bragging rights when you go, go around the city and I, I love playing there um, if I could change one thing I would have maybe stayed a little bit more patient but the manager the way he was with me and I was at such a young age I just needed to completely move away from there because he wasn't good for my development. Um, what else at the club do you want to get into? So you went Bristol City, Wigan Athletic, and now we're talking about Sheffield United where you spent uh, a handful of years, a couple of years. Um, anything else worth getting into to note? It's interesting that you bring up you know, the approach from the manager and how it didn't fit your style. Was that a pretty common theme uh, amongst other players in the club and being frustrated with the approach of the manager? I think because we had, um, you know, we had Gary Speed in the team, we had uh, James Beattie in the team and they both played at a very high level in the Premier League for so many years at an international level and they've um, they pre pretty much seen it and done it and when we had a manager and he was, and they would, you know, go against him, they didn't agree with him, I think they would question him a few times mm -hmm. and I think that's the thing. When you come up against very experienced players who have played at a higher level and they don't agree with the manager, it can be sometimes can be very difficult for the manager then to win them back over. You you've played, uh, like I said, a, a pretty long career and have seen a lot, a lot of different clubs. Managers uh, seem to have the biggest influence on players, or should have the biggest influence. I want to be careful how I word this because I want to get it right. Um, because there are top players that you see at, you name the club, and then they get bought by a certain team and all things fall apart, right? Or they don't have the success that they had at their previous club. Um, is it fair to say that the manager is the biggest piece? You've also talked about, you know, say if it's a, a South American player coming over and having to adjust to the culture. But I think that's a whole nother piece, and I'm, I'm not trying to get into that. I'm thinking and I'm trying to direct the question specifically to the manager, the club environment where a player gets bought that's doing really well and then they get uh, into the new team that they're with and things aren't as successful where maybe they don't fit the style of the, you know, uh, of the club and how they're trying to play. But then why bring that player in? You know what I mean? I'm trying to get a sense of or if you can share your perspective of you know why managers maybe take the approach that they do if they have certain players or a handful of players that are trying to talk about a certain style of play because historically um, there are a lot of English managers, UK managers uh, that play a very direct style of play, physical style of play, which is important, right, to get results. Yeah. But is that solely the purpose of or idea behind, okay, look, we can't take as many risks trying to possess like Sheffield United has adjusted their style of play, I'm sure, since you've been there. Um, yeah. So to get to my point, why do the managers play that style of maybe super direct, getting the ball wide, um, 
you know, get the ball into the attack quickly versus maybe this more uh, technical, uh, beautiful side of the game like Guardiola has introduced and maybe is more of a Spanish-style approach? I think with the, the British culture, the way it used to be, that, that was just a mentality of big, physical, um, strong, and keep it out of like an area where we couldn't concede a goal. I think that's what you know, what philosophy was really. But I think the foreign manager's approach changed the game in the English league because they like to play a more attractive style of play. And then that made the British coaches think we need to up our game because we're no longer relevant right now with the the, the old tactics because we're getting outdone with um, just the tactical knowledge, really. I think... You know, if you look at Barcelona, I watched a documentary on Barcelona the other day, and Johan Cruyff was the original who put the DNA of the way their style of play was, and then Guardiola brought that back. Mm -hmm. And of course, Guardiola then stepped it up with what he achieves. And I think with Guardiola, for example, I think he has he t he talks to his players as a human being and how they they're mentally coping with the game, how are they doing as a person, rather than just purely about the game all the time. Um, I think with the, Brit the British coaches where the man management skills were not really that great. Mm. Um, not saying all, because I can only go right. off the manager that I play with, I uh, play for. So I think that's just, that's, that's just the way the culture was. I think, um, but I think the Brit, if you look at the England team, um, and the way they're going around with Gareth Southgate, how they pass the ball now and how they go about things, he's, doing extremely well and they they're they're very exciting to watch the For Welsh sure. team we've been when I was with there with John Toshak which is obviously an ex-Real Madrid manager he um put that try to put that style of play for us at that time we just didn't have very good players all at once that time because we were um, going through a transitional period but after that if you look at when we were under Gary Speed and Chris Coleman we did then start to um you know look like a real good footballing team Right. So, yeah, you, you kind of answered the question there. And now that I think about my wording of it, uh, I should have, you know, approached it as, is it more of a tactical understanding or a conservative approach that the managers take where, you know, they don't want to take the risk of trying to maybe build out of the back or play through midfield in a certain game? You know what I mean? Where you, you've mentioned it slightly there where some managers don't have the tactical understanding, but I feel like that's not all. Yeah, I think that they didn't understand the tactical, and I, d I don't think they could maybe organise a team. For example, when I was at Birmingham, um, we had a manager called Gary Rowe, and we used to play counter-attacking football, where we knew what our limits were, we knew our capabilities, we knew that we weren't going to be able to pass the ball and create so many chances because we weren't, we didn't have the players to do it. For sure. So it's about having, it's about having the understanding of the players you have in that group. Um, and if you can't afford to go out and buy, uh, spend millions of pounds on new players and you have to build, that's where your coaching skills come in to organize the team the best that you can get results. And I think that's what we did extremely well. But then when we had Gianfranco Zola come in and take over us, he wanted to play a new attractive style of football. But it couldn't be done because we just didn't have the players. Mm -hmm. And that proved with the results because we were winning matches. We were three points off second place in the championship when Zola took over. We then only won two matches in 24 games when we tried playing a new style of football. So it's about having an understanding of the players you have and implementing that. And the best 
managers I played under Brendan Rodgers and if we made mistakes he would say it's my fault I want you to play this style of play mm. I will take full responsibility of it whereas other managers with an old school approach would be like they just shout at you because they think why are you making that mistake blah, blah. it's because they knew that their job was on the line and they would look stupid for it whereas the better managers I feel are the ones who wanted to go out and play and they'll take full responsibilities because they know that their job is on the line gotcha Gotcha. Now that makes sense. Was Brendan Rodgers the best manager you played for or, or your favorite manager you played for? If not, who was? Um, Brendan Rodgers in terms of the way we trained. Um, when I was at Swansea City with him, I used to love playing that team because I think, going back to your question previously as well, if you in the championship, if you, if you ask most players um, many years ago, you'd only know maybe one or two teams out of 20 or 24 teams mm-hmm. in that division that would um, play football. All the other player, all the other teams would just literally work as hard as you can. The strongest players or the tallest players might get an advantage for you to then win the game. Um, and literally just play off, off scraps, really. Whereas like when I was in that Swansea team, we used to pass the ball. And it was like one of the only teams in the division that I used to do that. But our training was so good. Um, but the intensity day in, day out to demand for you to be better than you were yesterday was what we were working on every single day. So his preparation for games, his training, um, was probably the best that I've come across, for sure. Um, he wasn't my favourite manager just because um, I, just, I wasn't playing week in, week out, and it didn't work out for me there. But mm-hmm. I still respected what he was trying to implement, um, his ideas. And I liked the, his style of play, his philosophy. Um, but my favourite manager was Gary Rowett just because I was so important to Birmingham at that time and I was playing week in, week out. Um, and I think he just understood me as, as a person more than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I talk a little bit more about the, the championship and why you think clubs uh, you know, haven't adjusted their style of play to maybe more of a modern approach, more tactical approach. I think it's changed significantly since you've played and it's definitely changed over the past couple of decades. But why do you think there still is this, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, just direct style of play, right? Is that just because it's so results focused? Obviously, all professionals, uh, all teams are, are result based. Um, but what else goes into that where it's just, you know, this direct style of play, maybe not the prettiest style of play? Why is that, you know, still the approach from clubs in the championship? I think it's very difficult to to say that because I think I think most teams that I play for in the championship, apart from Swansea, I would say is that when we used to be at Swansea, we used to always say, "If we play well, we win the game," and we focus purely on our philosophy and what we're trying to achieve in that sure. game. I think the other matches, and it's a very difficult league. You have to yeah. think it's playing Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. It's very, very demanding on your bodies to even try and play at 100% all the time. It's just, it's impossible. So I think that can play a part. Um, you know, you have an off day, but I think the standard of football that uh, the championship are playing, I think it has um, definitely improved for sure over the, over the number of years. Hmm. And it is an exciting league to watch. Um, obviously not as, as football-based as, as the Premier League, but 
most of the better players in the Championship get picked up and go to the Premier League anyway. I think that's, that's fairly right. difficult. Where and it's still treated like a business where the demands to get promoted it costs you know you can make 120, 140 million for teams to get promoted. So they're very conscious of trying to get. Um, promoted, stay organised. So there's a lot at stake in that division as well, and and Championship is an amazing league to, to mm-hmm. be involved with as well. I think, as I said, a lot of players are they're very good players there. There's a lot of Premier League, ex Premier League players that are there, and it's it's a great level to be at. It's just um, that football attracted, attract um, attractive wise is not um, as much as the Premier League, but not many divisions are. If you look at the standard of the championship compared to, I would say, even teams in, uh, you know, the second division in um, Spain, mm. I'd still say that the championship standard of football is way above that. I think um, if any foreign player comes over and plays in the championship, they realise how demanding that league is. Yeah, no, for sure. I don't want to discredit what the championship oh, no, no, has done. <laughs> no, because it is a high level, but, um, you know, there are those... I've had conversations and I've listened to people and say, you know, look, it is a direct style of play for the majority of teams. But like we've mentioned and and like you've said, uh, it's about getting the results and getting promoted because of what's on the line. The amount of, you know, the amount of money that a team can earn by getting promoted or by staying up in the championship is significant. So... Yeah, it's, it's huge. I think there's so many factors to take in consideration. There's there's managing changes. The owners um, want to have a new manager. They want to, and then you, and then you also you have to take in consideration that if one, say for example, you're the manager and you implement your philosophy, but then you get the sack and then another manager comes in, the the new manager with different philosophy and a style of play, he's working then with your players that might not suit his style of play. So. There's a number of factors that why sometimes you know the games might not be as pretty to watch as it, as you know for, for the audience as you may like. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it is about results, right? I don't think many people care. Uh, they'd let's say this: they'd rather the result than the performance, right? Especially in, in the English culture. I think uh, the American culture is still catching up. Um, I don't want to say catching up. That's probably not the right word to use, but. Um, <laughs> But it's it's something that's discussed at the youth level in particular, where it's about development and looking good and not focusing on the results, where I think we've lost that a little bit here in the States, where it is about results at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like it is in the championship yeah, I, and Premier League. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it, well, it's a results business for sure. I think, you know, in the Premier League, you only have to look at some of the managers these days where they, they don't really last that long. If you have a few bad results, you're literally, your head is on the line to get the sack. So from that side of things, it, it's very, it's not a forgiving job. If you're losing, it is a results business. But I think there's only one club in the entire world that put their performance before um, the results, and that's Barcelona, because their philosophy is if you play well and you you do the right things, the results will follow. Whereas 99% of the other teams are just one results. It's not about how they play. What What was the youth setup like for you? Uh, did you play like under 16s or, or under 14s? You must have, right, to get to where you are. But what was that like? Was it a results thing or was it a performance uh, approach? I think it was more... Um, 
it was very it was diff it was different sometimes but i couldn't and i was i always wanted to win we wanted to i wanted to win mm-hmm. whether it was about the performance or not if i if my team if i scored one or two goals and my team lost i would still be devastated because we lost so was that the manager's approach too and the club's approach was results um, I think from our side of things, because we were in League One, but we were a football academy, we were still playing against Arsenal, Chelsea, Man United as young kids. So they were expected to beat us all the time. So because we were underdogs all the time, it, it would have been purely about the performance because the, all they were trying to create was as many players through the academy as possible. Because if you make it to the first team and then you then get sold on, that obviously goes in the owner's pocket. So it was kind of... Mm. You know, we got a very the coaches and the philosophy and the way the academy run uh, that was run at Bristol City. I think is very, very good. It's, it's been very successful in terms of how many players have broke into the first team um, and and then gone on to have amazing careers. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you've brought up too that I, I want to ask you about is managers and their short stints. Right, if they're not successful um, for a couple of weeks, and you know the club drops a couple of points and they start to fall on the table and then they're sacked uh, whatever a quarter of the way through the season halfway through the season right what's your feeling and what's the consensus uh, amongst players when you know form is temporary right you get a you may have a couple of bad games in a season and sometimes maybe the triggers pulled too soon uh on a manager and then like you said a new manager comes in and you have to adjust to their style of play in in a couple of days before the next match what's that like in the club and you know maybe talk about uh, an instance where maybe the sacking was wrong or, or the, the coach getting fired was wrong and then that screwed up the team even worse than it actually was does that make sense yeah i think the only one that i can say is the one where i mentioned earlier is that when i was at birmingham and guy route got the sack we were three points off second place and i personally felt that we were one or two signings in because he got sacked in december and i i truly believe that if we signed one or two good players in January we would then get the boost for us then potentially get promoted to the Premier League so but then we beat a team maybe 4-2 and the owners were not happy with the style of play that we were playing mm. but our style of play was counter-attacking football we knew what we were going to do and we felt that as long as we were winning that's the most important thing um, and we were really good we had a great group of lads we were all close and then we brought in Gianfranco Rizzolo, who is a very good, good person. Very, you know, he's one of the best players in the Premier League of all mm-hmm. time, um, and he's an amazing player. I think someone who played at his level so high was demanding way too much of the players that he had because we just mm-hmm. couldn't do it because we were not maybe at the level that he was maybe used to. Um, I think he felt that somewhere, but then he's getting influenced by the owners what teams play not what not to play and it was very difficult for him so we then went from being three points off third place to then winning two games in 24 games and it's just it's just ridiculous so from that point of view it didn't pay off at all um but the reason why they stuck with him is because the owners wanted to you know justify their decision but it didn't work it was it was one of the worst decisions i've ever seen in football for me anyway what are your thoughts on sacking a manager halfway through the season 10 games into the season 
I feel like it's one of those things in football that's really unjust, you know, for a manager. All the blame gets put on the manager. Um, and when there's a poor run of form and there's, you know, a poor uh, streak of results, um, then the trigger gets pulled sometimes too soon um, on a manager. And it's almost more detrimental to the club when then they have to pull in a new manager. And then that manager has to, you know, figure out how to work with the players, you know, rather than giving the manager, uh, you know, some more time to, to iron some things out rather than, you know, try and get someone new in to fix, you know, what the ownership group may think is a mess. Are you one that, you know, believes in sacking a manager, you know, midway through the season or letting it play out and let the manager finish the season? What are your thoughts? What's your perspective on it? I, th- I think um, from my experiences before, I think if you have a manager that's shit mm-hmm. <laughs> and, they're, and, they're not, and they're not doing anything for the team and not improving the team and it's just he's lost the dressing room where the players don't have respect for him, they don't believe in what he's doing, I think sack him because it's not going to work it's many occasions where you then change the manager and then it brings a new lease of life into the dressing room and then they avoid relegation or they get promoted or they or they do great things or they win a cup is because they change that manager to then inject that new energy into the squad i think if it's not working um the decisions have to be made and if it's not i would i would sack him personally if it's not working mm-hmm. i wouldn't i wouldn't wait i wouldn't wait for the whole wait. season for no Nah, that's great insight. And obviously somebody that's experienced it and has been through it, I appreciate your perspective. And at the end of the day, it also is a business, right? So if things aren't working out, then decisions need to get made. Let's go into um, maybe another club that you played for that you want to to touch on. Um, Let's go into the Indian Premier League that you had a short stint for. Unless there's one of the other English or UK clubs that you want I to think, talk about that's I, that's worth uh, mentioning with either players that you've played with or or how the club was run or or maybe a massive challenge that you faced that you know one of the clubs. I think Doncaster is the team that stand out for me in terms of because we um, I don't know if you know this but on the last um, day of the season when I when I went there so I. When I left Swansea, I wasn't enjoying football at all. I was thinking I was having very tough challenges mentally, whether I wanted to stay in the game or not. So I went to Doncaster because the manager at the time was named Dean Saunders and he was an ex-Premier um, League player and played mm-hmm. for Wales. And he knew me. He said, look, come and enjoy it. Get promoted from the league, go into the championship um, and get you back on track because you should be playing for the national team because you're good enough. So I then I went there and I scored. I was playing right wing. I scored 10 goals that season had I made like 22 23 assists that season so I've made team of the year so it was very successful but on the last day of the season we played Brentford away from home all we need we were top we were first in the league um Brentford was third in the league and Bournemouth were second in the league so Bournemouth had to better our results to be champion champions we had to only draw to get promoted to go first or second, and Brentford had to beat us to climb above us, which then would put us in third position to go into the playoffs. So, the 90th minute, we could see the penalty oh, against gosh. Brentford, and 
they I was like thinking, oh my fuck. I was thinking, who am I going to beat up in the dressing room because they've just given a penalty kick away. I was fucking outraging. Right. So anyway, they hit the crossbar. It broke out a little bit. We then break. We score in the 92nd minute. And we gone from basically going, thought we were going to go into the playoffs and then winning the league. And Bournemouth thought that we lost. So they were celebrating, think that they won the trophy, the mm-hmm. league above us. And so when we scored late, we obviously had the trophy then delivered to us. And we went, it was just so high and, and lows of emotions where we thought it was so dramatic to literally think, right, we're going into the playoffs and then winning the league in such 30 seconds is, is, is madness. What, um, I, I want to get into more of, of the demands and the highs and lows in, in your career. What, what's the biggest challenge that you faced? in your career i think i know the high with which is probably euros um maybe yeah. i'm wrong with that but that's i want to definitely get into euros what was the biggest challenge that you faced in your career if you had to pinpoint just one um i think even i had many highs and lows i think in between swansea and doncaster was really big because that's when my drinking started to kick in a little bit more with my addiction with alcohol. And so I think that was a tough period of my life um, in the sense of I was trying to portray me of being a perfect athlete and training day in, day, day out to then having a problem with drinking. I think that was my biggest challenge. Um, and I, and it, it literally got worse than when I was even at Birmingham towards the end. Um, but I think that was a huge challenge for me. I think my biggest accomplishment would be obviously my my debut um for playing for bristol city first and foremost because i always wanted to be professional football i followed my boyhood dream that i worked extremely hard for i always wanted to play for the national team and my goal was to play at a major championship so be involved um with wales a major competition but it's quite strange because at that championship it was so many highs and there were amazing people that i was involved with in the squad and um, the whole management team um, but I was literally for my mental health side of things I was not in a good place so it was really it was very different emotions really when I was involved in the football that in the match days perfect um, but when, anything outside of that my real my mental health um, really took its toll so now that you've you know broken the ice I mentioned it earlier in the podcast that we would get into something that you dealt with uh, throughout your career, which you just made it known, the the mental health side of things, which we will definitely get into and I think is important to talk about because, like I said, I think a lot of players deal with uh, mental health in different ways throughout their career, um, in different levels, in different capacities. but I want to real quick before we really start to get into that, talk about Euros um, and that success. Let's talk about the players, what it's like playing in a European championship and um, you know the details of it. And then let's quickly touch on India as well, because I'm, I'm interested as to why you decided to join a, a Indian Super League team. Yeah, so um, with the Euros, I think... I think that will always be a huge part of my life because I well it, it always will be because players we broke into the national team pretty much together so we we grew up um, as professionals 
how we used to approach matches where you know we'd go into t- play teams and be like, oh, we'll probably lose today and we as long as we keep it two or down two or three goals we'll be okay but we changed that mentality to say well we're going to win today um, and I think that's where we started to, to make amends where the plans for us to be in the Euros it come many years before that where the hard work was, was going on behind the scenes um, the way we were getting more professional the way we were getting taken more seriously from our own fans, from the general public in Wales, to actually then having respect from other teams that we were playing against. And I think from that point of view, um, you know, it was amazing to be a part of it. And then for us to then qualify um, to go to a major championships was obviously something that we always set out and to work extremely hard for. And we were very fortunate because, you know, we had very good players. We were all playing at a higher level than we ever used to before with, the previous Welsh squads we were involved um, you know we had we had a superstar in Gareth Bale who well who's obviously at the heights when he joined Real Madrid and so I think he just put a lot of confidence in us in us as well and all down the spine of our team from the goalkeeper to our captain Ashley Williams to Joe Allen then to Aaron Ramsey then to Gareth Bale our whole, whole spine of our team were you know, very strong in terms of when we come to playing against any teams that we come up against. So those were all guys that you played with in the youth system as well, or you mentioned, you know, the handful of players that, you know, shifted the approach uh, of the uh, of the national team. What other players go into that? You mentioned, you know, some big names that people are familiar with. Um, and then let's talk about, or have, can you talk about the impact, you know, that they have on other players, you know, that, you know, aren't the caliber of a Gareth Bale or Aaron Ramsey or, um, you know, whoever else, you know, needs to be noticed in that group? I think with, especially my, in my experience with um, the Welsh national team is that when I first broke in, we had Craig Bellamy and Ryan Giggs, who were obviously, Ryan Giggs was a superstar. He was, For sure. the career he's had, he's, you know, he's won the most Premier League titles in history. He's played for Man United more than 800 times. So, from that point of view, he was, was my footballing hero growing up. So when I first broke into the team, I used to look at him and think, right, how is he carrying himself, acting professional and and so on. So I kind of looked at him, um, but I had that fiery personality like Craig Bellamy where I just lose my shit at any given time. But mm-hmm. I, think with, I think with someone like Craig Bellamy is that he demanded to be the best day in, day out and Yes, he could have put maybe things a little bit better to other players, but it's only because he wanted to win. He wanted you to then rise to his um, expectation and his levels and the demands that he put on himself to, to win. Um, so in that respect, he was one of the best professionals and players that I play with because he demanded on you every single day. Whereas Gareth's approach was, because we knew each other, maybe I might take that a little bit different because you know, he never spoke to me in a bad way. He never spoke to other people in a bad way. He was—he had that respect because he's a very humble and fun and chilled out guy um, where he just let his football do the talking, where he would take a different responsibility to um, be a leader on the pitch when he used to, well, he used to just take everyone on and score a goal. But I think from that side of things, that's where it kind of shifted, where we thought, you know, we're actually a good team now. And, and I think when we used to look at him, he used to set the bar so high um, it was only be good for you. I think if you look at all the great teams, and they always have that one standout player that raised the levels of others. Right. 
Um, you know, one question that maybe it ties into the to the mental health. You mentioned the confidence that Gareth Bale gives a team, right? And I'm sure Ryan Giggs did the same. Um, but does that also add some stress and anxiety for other players that aren't at the levels they're at and they feel like they need to carry on and keep the level at that, um, you know, standard that those guys have introduced or, or keep? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think you'd see a lot of that would happen a lot, um, not even just in the national team, but even at club level where you, I, I knew men's where I played at previous clubs and because they can't or they're anxious that day or they're just not, and they're really not being confident at that present moment in time, coming to the new club. And a lot of players would ask me, I thought he was a good player. Why is he? He doesn't seem that good or whatever it is. And I knew that he was still a good player, but because of maybe that the things you mentioned, you know, the anxiety or anything, other um, factors that, um, you know, can can play a part, it kind of then um, takes your performances away. And I've seen it many times before, whereas in the Welsh national team, you have high-profile players who demand more of the other players. They just go into their shell and Mm. then they start doubting and thinking, oh, I shouldn't be a part of this. Then you see again in the squad because they didn't step up um, to get to the levels that the you know that the squad required. Right. So how does how does somebody like Gareth Bale or Ryan Giggs help one of those players or um, you know put them under their wing to to support them or give them a boost and uh, you know maybe take some of the stress away from them or do they not even do they even take that approach? Yeah, I've seen it happen all the time. You know, I think a lot of players do take that approach. And I wouldn't even say that those two uh, Ryan Giggs would demand so much of many players. You don't win that many titles without wanting to be a winner day in, day out. Right. Um, so they would demand things, but it's only because they wanted to win. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't, um, you know, I've seen a lot of other players who are way worse in terms of, um, you know, verbally abusing players to step up to a certain mark and they couldn't sure. do it and they would go into their shell so I wouldn't say from them point of view they wouldn't but they would say come on let's do it this way and when they when they spoke in the dressing room you would listen because they have that respect because they're top players mm-hmm. what else uh, in terms of Euros uh, do you want to touch on you talk about the the you know growth of what you achieved and how each game you know help the country maybe realize uh you know some things are possible to to achieve the european championship um what else can you get into about that experience and you know you talk about the highs and the lows um but what else you know goes into preparing for a tournament like that you know day to day before the game uh the approach of the uh you know national team because you're competing in the same tournament as quote-unquote world powers, right? Where maybe Wales isn't put in that category. Yeah, I think we were always... We knew that our capabilities going into the games, uh, we always felt confident in every match that we played. Otherwise, there's no point going to play. If you don't want to win, don't play. (laughs) So I think that's what our approach was. We knew what we could do. Um, The whole tournament experience is completely different because it's something that the whole of the Welsh squad, the whole setup of the... Federation um, of Wales have never been in before so it was all new to us in terms of our hotel we couldn't have any 
other guests in the hotel there. We had it closed down. We had um, a lot of security around us. We were couldn't really do much. So from that set, side of things, it was completely strange to us. Um, and it, it was just us group for like six to seven weeks or whatever it may be. I think the turning point was when we qualified, obviously, out of the group stage and then we um, beat Belgium in the quarterfinals, I think it was. I think from that, that point, I thought, wow, we could actually potentially win this win mm-hmm. this tournament because we um, we had a thing over Belgium that season, actually. We beat them in the, qualifier, in the qualifying group even before the championships. And I think we didn't look out of place and they won the favourites. They had obviously an amazing squad um, in strength and depth. And I thought, wow, we could actually win this. And then we played, obviously, Portugal in the semi-finals. Um, and we just did, we just won our usual self. We missed Aaron Ramsey, which was a huge player for us in the semi-finals. Portugal didn't play that really well. They were just more, they were more tactically aware. They were more confident. You could tell them they had more players who played at a higher level than in competitions than we had, uh, high pressure situations. And um, Cristiano Ronaldo, which you say it all the time, he didn't really have a good game, but he scored two goals. And that just the effect of that. Yeah. When a top player is not playing well, they still have an effect on the game. What uh? What were the group games in there for you? Oh wow, you're throwing me here. Um, all I can, honestly, all I can remember is I think we well, we played against England, um, Slovakia, and I remember we played we played Russia as well in the last sixteen, which we demolished them. I can't. I'm forgetting. I can't forget. I'm forgetting the other team. No, they're all good. I feel like those are the demands, right? Where you just are in that moment and you're just taking it day by day. And once it's like, once the test is passed, it's like you forget everything that you studied for and you can't even remember what you just did, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, to be fair, I'm, I'm completely rubbish with people's names. Never mind remembering what was it, what group uh, games we played. But I think, in a sense of, of that, we're just so in awe of what we're doing and just focusing purely on what we set out to do. Um, that's that's what our mentality was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, regardless, you got third place in in Euro, so that's the most important thing. That's all that that's all that uh, needs to be remembered. So yeah, um, of course. I think we're gonna save India, your time at India, for the end. Um, you know, to, yeah. to uh, leave that as maybe like a fun fun story. I want to really get into the mental health side of things, uh, which is what I wanted to get into. Um, and the reason I really wanted to have you on to talk about it because I feel like it needs to be talked about a bit more, um, a lot more, um, and you have a very interesting perspective of it. You have your own organization now, um, and this has really come to to the forefront of what you're hoping to achieve, I'm sure, in the next uh, part of your life outside of football, um, even though you're still playing now a little bit. Um, and we met, what was that, almost two years ago um, when you first started this, you know, endeavor of talking about mental health and, you know, helping players and people with it. Um, so I'm going to pretty much hand it over to you. I want to get an idea of how the mental idea, mental uh, health issues started to arise throughout your career um, and, you know, touch on what you need to. Um, talk about the organization, everything, and I'll try to ask intelligent questions to to dig more into it. Yeah, so I think 
Um, well, my mental health issues started back when I was about 13, 14. I was so trying to perfect something. And as we know, there's no such thing as someone being perfect. So mm. um, I always had that mentality. And when I was not being perfect, I wouldn't have the perfect train, uh, training session. I was always, you know, self-harm. Um, with smashing my football studs against my shins because I knew that if I got questioned that, you know, um, the marks on my shins, I could say, oh, well, that was from a bad tackle or something because I was training three or four times a week so no one would know it's any different. And mm. as you know, when you play sports, you always get cuts anyway. So um, so that's when it really started, I think. And then it continued to be out early in my life where it was more like anger issues um, and so on. And... And then um, I'd obviously have bad episodes of depression, anxiety, but it, it did really start to, to kick into action when I was about 24, 25. Was that my, that's when I knew that something was really, really up because my drinking just started to spiral out of control. Mm-hmm. Um, I was always feeling low, but when I did feel low or depressed, I would always self-medicate with alcohol. Um, and it was, I was go out drinking so much um i feel lonely i even when i was out with like a group of people i still felt lonely really in that respect i didn't feel that just because i had company i felt that i was really happy um i wasn't i wasn't happy at all i was hiding hiding it all just to drink um and then later on in my career i would get really pissed um with alcohol, I would literally go out. I was always doing reckless things. Um, I tried to take my own life on two or three, well, about three or four occasions, actually. Um, and then I just didn't want to be around anymore. So those were all, and then I would literally, I would be thinking that, trying to take my own life. And then the next day, I'd be going into training. So, and then hiding my emotions of how I really felt because I didn't want to, with the environment that we, that I was in, in the football industry, um, I thought I perceived a sign of weakness um, because that was just like the mentality that we were in. Mm -hmm. Um, And I didn't want to jeopardize my place in the teams or contracts for putting food on the table for my children because um, of me saying something like that because I didn't really think that I'd have the right support if I was still in that football industry. Um, And that's when the back end of my career before... um, going to India I tried to take my own life I went to India and I was it's the worst thing I could possibly do because my wife at the time was um, heavily pregnant and she couldn't fly over with me and I went there and I was in a hotel in a, in a new culture a crazy culture and mm. um, I was alone and that didn't really help me um, so I was still having crazy thoughts when I was out there and then that's when I flew back after being in India and I, just, I, I continued to drink for a while and then that's when I decided that it's either die or sort your shit out basically and that's when I checked into rehab mm-hmm. well there's the start for, for the listeners and I want Jesus the fact that you're in India is probably the craziest place to have those thoughts especially if you're not Indian right no disrespect to Indians I'm not <laughs> saying that right but the fact that where you are in the world based on who you are that's a crazy yeah. place to be having those thoughts. So let's, do, what you talk about wanting to perfect things and being a perfectionist, I think a lot of players are like that. 
what else in your career, you talk about the highs and the lows, your lows being super low and your highs being super high. What else, you know, throughout your career transpires where it's like you start to really have depression or anxiety or whatever mental health issues that you had? I think the thing is, especially in the, if there are professional footballers that are listening, is that they will understand is that from the public perception is that they think they were, we're robots mm. and we're actually not. We are actually human beings who have feelings. And I think at the time, not not people would know this, but I was going through a divorce. Right. I was having to perform a, a week in, week out. And when you're going through a divorce and you can't have access to senior children and so on and so on, it, it takes its toll because it's not a, a, you know, if you have children, you're not allowed to see them or they live so far away from you and you're playing a professional game somewhere else. Um, it takes its toll. It's very emotionally draining, really, where um, she's trying to perform at a certain level. You can't see your kids. You can't do this and do that. Then you're drinking more. Then you're going out and getting treated like a robot and then having, you know, maybe fans shouting bullshit at you or whatever it is. And that's normal. That's part of the game. I used to love all that. When the fans used to give me stick, I used to love that part. That's not what mm -hmm. I'm getting at. It's just um, from the outside is that um, footballers do have emotions and footballers do go through a lot of shit that right. other people don't know about uh, but we all go through shit anyway but I'm just saying it from that side of things we're then still um, you know to play at an elite level like that is very demanding as well mm -hmm. and look that's some, one of those things that I feel like isn't put into consideration enough you know by fans or supporters the outside you know variables you talk about a divorce you know, players go through hundreds of things just like any quote-unquote ordinary human goes through right that has a nine to five um but the guys working or girls working nine to five that's you know in a manufacturing job doesn't have somebody heckling them uh you know if they're not doing their job properly or up to the standard that you know somebody uh wants them to you know what i mean they don't have ten thousand fans you know heckling them or supporters or whatever you want to categorize them as uh, you know, talking shit about you, right? They are only thinking about, okay, I want this player to get my team a result for this weekend and I paid, you know, 40 pounds for my ticket and I don't care what he's going through in his life, but you better get the result for my club or else I'm not buying a ticket next week and I'm gonna, you know, say all this nasty stuff on social media or, you know, heckle him as he comes out of the tunnel, whatever it is. And I feel like that isn't, taken into consideration enough the fact that yeah footballers are human beings at the end of the day um you know they are going to be held to a high standard athletes are held to a high standard because of the passion involved in a sport but there also needs to be some of that slack thrown their way you know to say shit you know what he had a bad game today but you know next week right but the culture in a lot of places are like who gives a shit if you have a bad game get on with it you're getting paid you know hundreds of thousands of pounds a week tens of thousands of pounds a week whatever it is um who cares get on with it make sure you get the result for for our club that we support you know yeah i think that's what it, it, it all comes down to the money side of things is that well if you're on that x if you're on thousands of pounds a week you should be you should be happy you should be this you should be that whereas that i think that's the mentality that definitely the British 
public, I would say, have with the fans is that, well, if you're in thousands of pounds a week, you should be happy, you shouldn't be miserable, you shouldn't feel depressed because that oh, no, I'm saying, emotions. Sorry, I'm saying if you're getting paid tens of thousands of pounds a week or 100,000 pounds a week, you should be able to complete every pass, complete every dribble, <laughs> score every goal that yeah. you... Which which is not the reality of it, but that's what I'm saying. Those, think, the fans are saying, yeah, "Who gives a shit if they're, you know, they got to they got to score? They're getting paid uh, thirty thousand pounds a week." It's impossible to to be perfect at anything, but I suppose that's what you know. As you rightly said, fans pay their own money to 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 go and there, and that's what makes football so brilliant is that everyone's entitled to their opinion sure of course that's not, yeah, so i think that's important they shouldn't lose that that, that has to stay yes and of I course agree. it will but um but i think it's impossible to, to be perfect at anything um and even the best athletes in the world they always you know they have failure i think i seen something the other day and, and maldini paolo maldini who obviously is is a legend for mm-hmm. ac milan he I'm sure he said that he's lost more finals than he's actually won, but he's yeah. remembered as being a legend. So mm-hmm. it just goes to show you can, you can't be perfect. And I think so. I always um, like seeing at the grounds when the fans are allowed to come on the pitch and kick the football, mm-hmm. and you watch their technique and, and things, and you just right. think you're the, you're the guys who are actually abusing us on the sideline, and then you can't do it. So right. everyone can always do, everyone can always do the job until they're actually in those shoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's it's so funny to get them or to get fans or to have supporters be so tough and and scrutinize players for for that because they've never been in your shoes they have never experienced a, a pro game yet they're the ones that are being the most critical where like you said they don't take into account nor did it seem like they care if you know a player is going through a divorce or is whatever say an international player adjusting to life so somebody maybe that we can tie into this and you don't need to go into any specifics but i think about somebody like gareth bale one of your team one of your former teammates who has been super successful world-class player but he gets a lot of scrutiny thrown his way maybe it's deserving maybe it's not we don't need to go into it but he's a foreigner in a in another country He's had to deal with a lot of injuries. Um, I don't know if that's due to stress and the outside fa- external factors that you know is putting stress on him, adjusting to life. But there could be a million other things that he's dealing with in his life that isn't being put into consideration, and then it just you know the domino effect. It just continues to pile on, and maybe there's no coming out of it for for a certain player. Yeah, I think. Um, I feel someone like him has been unjustified in terms of his um, critiques really where in at Real Madrid I think um, it's it's one of the most um, high precious places you can be in terms of the demands that they have at a football club but I think what he's achieved is unbelievable where he's won, won like four Champions Leagues he scored in most of the finals mm-hmm. he scored more goals than um, the Brazilian Ronaldo Zidane whereas like they say he, I, I've heard some that they class him as being like a failure no way right? It's, it's mad well why do you think the critics are so tough on him then because he's injured so much I think maybe with um, that might play a part or I think the public were perceiving that he couldn't speak Spanish um how do they know he can't speak Spanish? Because they're not in his house. They're mm-hmm. not in his the dressing room. 
Whereas I know when he's come away with Wales, he used to have his own private masseur who's come away with us from Real Madrid. They used to speak Spanish together. <laughs> so it's amazing what the outside world might say, but if you don't live with that person, how do you know what it's like? Yeah, that goes back to, to the main point, right? They, the outsiders, the fans, the supporters, the people that aren't in that circle of the, the team, whether that's teammates, front office people, you know, coaches, they really have no idea what's going on in that player's life, yet they're being so, so uh, you know, scrutinizing them so much. Um, yeah. So anyway, circle back to, to mental health side of things, and it was, we're on mental health, but the, the challenges, other challenges that you've dealt with. So it doesn't seem like fans really bothered you, or if any fans, uh, you know, were, uh, I guess, distraction or caused any of mental health issues. No, I think, you know, when I was growing up, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, he's very critical of me um, with my certain bringing up. The so way that's where was, the, perf- sorry, that's where the perfection comes from. Yeah, for sure, because I would always had to practice. I wouldn't be able to go out with my friends because I had to practice. And if I didn't, I'd, make, I'd definitely hear about it. Um, and it would always be very abusive. It wouldn't be... Always like you should be practicing today. It was always very like, right, you don't want to be a fucking footballer because of this and that. Blah, blah, blah. And you're like a young kid. And it's just like, just mm-hmm. let me live as well. I need to live and have fun. Um, but I feel like I don't really think that I had a fun childhood, to be quite honest. I think in a set, like when I look back, um, everything was purely just talking about my footballing career, nothing else. Mm hmm. What else goes into it in terms of dealing with you know the mental health side of things as a professional footballer? Was there pressure put on by teammates or um, you know CEOs or presidents of clubs, uh, sporting directors that aided or added pressure to to you, and then you having to deal with you know anxiety with getting results for for clubs, um, or was it simply the fact that? you were held to such a high standard as a kid and you wanted to perfect uh, your your craft as a footballer. Um, what else throughout your career, you know, did you have to deal with? I think the, the, the pressures, um, that's, that's, that's why we're in the, the industry as well. We love football, but we set out to win matches and I didn't really need demands off CEOs or managers for, to tell me that we need to win matches. I put that demand on myself anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, with the contracts and stuff, uh, trying to play as best as you can, you put pressure on yourself. But, um, you know, you would get pressure from managers to say, like, right, I'll play you this match, but if you don't play well, then I'm taking you out. But that was always the case anyway. If no one plays well, you can't expect to keep your place in the team. So, from that side of things, um, from the fan side of things, from anything like that, I really have anxiety from that. It was, um, I was such in a dark place and then my drinking would kick into place for me to then self-medicate was, um, and the, the pressures of obviously being in the public eye as well and then dealing with your addiction, dealing with your drinking and dealing with, with so many other things, it eventually comes to the table and it takes its toll. So during your career, there was nobody that you could 
talk to or did you try to approach anybody you you mentioned it earlier where you, it's not something that you wanted to bring up because of how you may be perceived in a football club how did you try to deal with it you know individually at home maybe um what i tried to do at home is that the thing is is that it's like anyone really whether you're in the football industry or you're uh, an athlete in another sport or you're um you have any job in any other industry is that if you're going to work and you're having shit because you're not doing something so great and then you're going home because you're going through a divorce you're basically having shit there as well mm-hmm. so you can't really escape anything you're just constantly you're feeling under pressure and you're unhappy um so i didn't feel that i could talk to anyone about it because probably from my first marriage she caused quite a lot of shit for me anyway so i wouldn't speak to her about things um and in the football industry, I would never speak to a manager or anyone to jeopardize my place in that team or to speak to it about anyone. And I wouldn't speak to my teammates because it's not that it wasn't a thing for, to do for me. I didn't want to, I wouldn't let anyone know. So not having anybody to go to probably, you know, really compounded the issue uh, where you couldn't have a release to, you know, get some ideas of maybe how to go a different direction than just drinking. Yeah, because... I think the pressure of week in, week out is you want to perform and you don't want to show a sign of weakness for you then not to perform because my only release was drinking or playing football matches um, and that was my release whereas then I would st- when I was feeling down or I was not feeling great I'd drink and then I'd just continue to drink and then before you know it you're then spiraling out of control and I was drinking on a regular basis, but then when I was drinking, I wasn't a nice person to be around. I was very angry. I was always doing stupid things. I could never go out and just have one or two drinks mm. and go home and be normal. It was always excessive and always um, crazy, crazy every time I was out, really. So what else, sorry, what else did I miss or what else do you want to talk about um from the mental health issue. I want to talk about advice that you can give. I want to talk about the platform that you've created uh, and then how you're helping, you know, other players, other people with mental health. What else needs to be noted? Uh, you know, I haven't asked maybe a specific question that you want to touch on. Yeah, so when I was when I was playing, I felt like there was no, no help for anyone. Um, that's just my view and I would never talk to anyone in the football industry about that when I was playing but I feel um, that it's, it's getting a lot better where you can speak to people and it's not a sign of weakness where you should be able to talk about these problems how to get you know um, better the way you feel um, so I've created these online mental health courses with my um, partner who's a psychotherapist so people can um I have help from at home because a lot of people don't feel that they can talk to anyone face to face. So we've created these online platforms where you can um, reframe your mind. So it, it, it digs deep in, into the into the mindset of how you want to feel. It covers anxiety, depression, trauma, whatever you might have been through in your life. And then it's set. You know, you've got goal settings on there as well, where you can refocus your mind to then achieve greater things that you have than you have done before. So it's all about just focusing on the mind to make you feel and, and focus on things a lot better. 
you can keep this confidential, obviously. Uh, what's the response from other footballers that maybe you've played with that, uh, you know, have come to you and said, geez, I had no idea that you were going through this. You know, I was going through something similar. What's the response from other footballers or maybe that you know of that are dealing with mental health issues? What would you say the percentage of players may be in a certain club? You think it's 50% of players deal with some sort of mental uh, health issue, whether that's anxiety or depression or, or whatever traumas, uh, you know, like you mentioned? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very difficult for me to put a percentage on it because mm -hmm. I don't have the facts for that. But they say that one in four of us suffer with mental health problems. So is that just humans? Sorry, is that just humans or footballers? Uh, yeah, that's, that's just humans. That's just okay. you know, the, the whole of the population. So if you take that statistic, then obviously in the dressing room, you have a lot of, of people that are struggling. Um, and in terms of, I think most most people in the world suffer with anxiety yes. at, some, yeah. at, at some point. So, you know, and definitely footballers will because, you know, at any given time before a game, you would definitely feel anxious or uncomfortable at some point of that moment in time. Whether you're ta taking a penalty kick, you're feeling a bit anxious, you're feeling a bit nervous. So that all kicks in and that ki um, that's just normal, I think, for especially a pressured situation of being a footballer. But um, I think it is very high. And I think more support needs to be put in place for footballers because it's um, a sign of weakness. And you want to be able to talk about these things to get you to get you the help that you need. Um, so that's hence why that's something that I feel really passionate about for me to then um, set things that up that I have. My foundation helps um, everyday today life with everyone, not just the football environment. So that's what I wanted to do because um, people. It's important that people have the the support that they need to go and uh, speak to someone or or have the help that they can have because when they go and see a counsellor it's very expensive so I wanted to give something back with my foundation that we could provide something that they can come um, and get things for free because not everyone can afford to, to get the help that they need. Mm -hmm. Yeah that's great I think uh, like I said I think a lot of players deal with with mental health uh you know, in different capacities and for different, you know, reasons. You mentioned wanting to perfect things. You know, if I were to say uh, I dealt with mental health, I would say I probably did a little bit because I didn't want to let other players down around me. I also, I think, brought it up earlier where, you know, you're playing with top players like a Gareth Bale. When I played with top players, I didn't want to let them down and make sure I was playing up to their uh, level right or keeping on track with them to help the team perform um, and I'm sure players that I work with deal with some sort of of mental health whether that's you know trying to earn what's common here in the US a scholarship for for college right to play at the collegiate level or uh, I'm sure there are a lot of players out there that want to be perfect and when they make a mistake they dwell on the mistake so much because maybe they get uh, you know scrutinized by their drunk father at home um, so what advice you know would you give to to players on what's the best way to deal with you know those uh, you know mental health issues they're not as extreme as yours and probably others with the alcoholism Right, but say it's a 14 to 19 year old player um, that's coming up, that's trying to make it, and they're you know dealing with you know anxieties that they have because they want their best performance. 
I think that I think um, try not to overthink and dwell on the past or dwell on a mistake that they've made because that's gone now. So as soon as you make the mistake, then move on to the next thing because you can't control what's just happened. So just focus on the best next thing that you can do. Um, I think that's the advice that I would give is that, uh, you know, you can't change what's happened. So if they, they make a mistake during football, um, forget about that. Try and do the, the right next thing. So if it's like a simple pass, keep the ball, that would then maybe help with anxiety to help with things like that. Try and get that overthinking under control because then you make a fake scenario head that and not even real. And before you know, you've literally destroyed a, how you you might have played or how you are as a person because you've just talked yourself into thinking that you're actually you're shit when you're not. Um, and if they're good players and they practice hard enough, then um, everyone's entitled to a bad game. Um, it's just about controlling our emotions to so then make sure that we don't overthink things and dwell on what we've lost going on. I actually got advice from a player that I've had on this podcast. He probably doesn't even remember he's he's told me this, but it's stuck with me for quite some time. His name is Aiden Quinn, plays in the USL Championship here in the States, um, and he was one of my college teammates. And he told me the best players have the shortest memories, um, which could be good, could be bad, but I looked at it as a good thing because, like you said, if you make the mistake, then move on from it, forget about it. Um, what else maybe like in terms of visualization can players do, um, you know, off the field, you know, to maybe be more positive about their performances or be less stressed, um, you know, heading into a match? Um, what other advice could you give to players uh, to prepare themselves for on the field, um, you know, stresses that they may face? So on, on the pitch, I think what worked well for me um, leading up to the match is routine. I think that's what footballers have is that a routine that works best for them. So it's kind of finding the right formula that works for them to then settle down, calm them down before a game um, and keep them with it. I was very suspicious. So um, I would always follow the same routine that I could. And if that was if that was off for some reason, I would then feel very anxious going into the game thinking, oh, wow, I've not prepared properly. I've not done this and done that. So I think is key um, and just not again not dwell on the past don't think because you had a good game last week or the previous match that you're going to have a good game again it's about staying focused and making sure you're prepared to, to do what you need to do on the pitch that's great advice what what else do I like I said I want to miss anything I want to make sure that everything is touched on I want to make sure that you're using this I mean the, the for the listeners out there um, I want to make sure that the message gets passed along and I want to make sure that you're sharing, you know, your story properly. Um, like I said to you off, off, uh, camera, uh, I don't have specific questions. Um, and I want to make sure that I'm not missing anything and I want to make sure that this is told and shared properly. So go for I it. I think, I think, I think anyone who, um, you know, if you're young, I think it's very important to talk about the way you're feeling because no one can guess what anyone's going on. You might look happy on the outside, but inside you're not happy at all. Um, and also, I think with the way the parents, if you are, have got older listeners, I think parents have to be very mindful with their children because um, the demands on them, and the way they speak, you know, you don't really understand what, effect that I might have on our children as well. 
Yeah, look, the one thing I do know is uh, the listeners seem to be, from the analytics that I have, seem to be parents. Um, And I think that's a big piece of it, how the parents communicate, uh, especially from some of the things that I've seen here uh, from parents screaming at players, you know, off the field, uh, could be very detrimental. I'm sure it happens all over the world, right? But I don't think uh, they think about what's being said and the potential impact um, you know, of some of the things that are said. So it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think, hope they I take think that, that from that side of things as well, just because, you know, just because you're, you know, buying your kid um, an expensive toy or an expensive present doesn't mean that you're showing them love. You have to go ahead. A little bit of technical yeah. difficulty there. You're okay now. <laughs> yeah. So I think it's fair. I think from the parents' point of view is that, you know, them by, because I've been to your school, but I know it's not, it's not cheap to So I think, you know, I'm paying for your education or things like that. It doesn't mean that you've shown the, the, the kid love. It just, you need to still show them, them love without saying, oh, well, I'm buying you these things or I'm doing this and doing that for you. You need to then make sure that you're a great support. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's huge advice that I think needs to be be heard and especially coming from somebody with your experience i hope it gets passed along and uh and is taken in and and thought about so let's talk about that the stint in india real quick before we wrap up um and then we'll make sure we leave everybody all the listeners with the proper information for your platform and and social media and where people can find you because like i said a lot of the listeners are based here in the u.s so maybe they're not familiar with you and hopefully they've they found maybe a new player to uh to take interest in yeah um yeah, so when I moved to India, I was actually thinking about. So I, I had a phone call off a championship team to sign for them. They offered me a contract of like eighteen months, but because I did it so long, I wanted the new experience, different culture. So I was thinking, I'm going to go to Dubai or the MLS, have nice weather, love life, and and have a nice way of living. But it turned out that I, um, Indian team ATK called Qatar wanted to sign me, so. I thought, look, I want to try a new experience. Um, to be quite honest, they were offering me shitloads of money to go, so I went. Mm-hmm. And and so Teddy Shannon was the manager. Um, Robbie Keane was in the team as well. So I thought, there's a few British players, so I can go out there and enjoy it. And it could be potentially, I could maybe go there for two or three years, um, have a new experience, then come back home. And rake in a lot but, of money along the way. Yeah, so what more do you want? <laughs> yeah. So... So I got there in India, and I was thinking, fuck me. I was outside the airport, and there was a cow getting walked along the road by a dog lead. And Mm. I thought, wow, welcome to India. And then literally, the more the experience just went on, like even like the the buses, normally in, you know, in the States and in the UK, you have seats and people sit down, and Mm. if it gets too overcrowded, you're not allowed on the bus. But I just remember seeing so many people practically sitting on the bus driver's knees while he was driving. It was that full. And the population was just crazy. It was just like we'd be in our hotel room. You'd be washing it, uh, washing in like nice showers, nice luxury hotels. And you'd literally walk 20, 30 meters down the road and you have people just washing in a ditch. And it was just it was just crazy. It's just like they're, they're naked in the street. 
washing clothes that are washed uh, drying in the streets it was just it was a crazy experience jeez yeah that's uh, it's one of those places you talk about it and it's i've heard from other players as well when they get towards the end of their career it's about uh you know experience cultural experience um and then also making as much money as possible you brought up mls was there any chance of coming to the mls that you can recall that you had any negotiations or talked to any teams yeah, there was there was a couple of close calls, um, especially with uh, Vancouver, probably more oh, than okay. anyone else. Yeah, um, and it just wasn't materialising. I had options to go to Australia, um, and I just felt that with a career that I had, I was maybe looking for better offers in terms of, um, you know, the teams that were again attracted to. Hello, yeah, yeah, the teams I was getting attracted to, and so that's why I decided to go to uh, go to India really because I was maybe potentially using that as a stepping stone to then go and put, sign for a big team in Australia or in China or somewhere for another different experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's it's crazy. Um, what but I think I think that's what I always say to my and unless you've been to India, it's really difficult for you to to tell someone how the experience is because it's just like. It's just crazy. Well, I almost went for a wedding uh, at the beginning of the year. One of my good friends that I went to college with got married in India, um, and I was really looking forward to it. But I got married December 28th, and his wedding was like December 30th for like four days in India. And I was like, no chance I can pull this off. I just got married. It's going to take a day and a half to fly there. Um, And then I had a really another good friend uh, getting married uh, January 4th. So I was like, no chance can I squeeze in a trip to India, you know, for for a couple of days. I wanted to go so bad, but hopefully uh, one day I will. I do want to, I love experiencing different cultures. I went to Thailand and Cambodia with a, a couple of friends a few years ago, which was incredible. Um, so yeah, I'm looking to to do some more of those trips to to uh, experience different cultures. So a um, couple of things before we wrap up here. I yep. usually ask the guests to share their most memorable soccer experience, football experience. Um, what's that for you? I think my favorite experience would probably scoring in the Premier League at the age of 18 because that's always something I wanted to do and playing at Old Trafford I was a Man United fan so probably playing at Old Trafford and I always wanted to play at Man, at Man United's ground and be seen on um, it's called Match of the Day I don't know if you have Match of the Day out in the States but it's one of the big shows in the UK where they show all the football highlights um, after the, on the weekend and so it's always been big so I've always wanted to see my name and um, my face on, on that programme so probably playing at Old Trafford and the Euros, of course, is is still a huge a huge part of, of my life. Best couple of players you played with and what they passed along to you and helped you throughout your career? Um, the best two players I played with are Gareth Bale and Ryan Gates. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say that they've passed anything on to me in terms of a... Um, trying to help me because me and um, Gareth were pretty well we're similar ages I'm a year older than him hmm. so we got brought up together so we um, he'd always give advice and talk in front of the group 
but he never personally just given me advice one on one. But I think the best professional that I've that I've come across was Gary Speed mm. and Craig Bellamy, and just their professionalism to demand the best out of each other every day is, is something that I probably took on board. Um, but for sure, Ryan Giggs and, and Gareth Bell are the best players I've played with. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, now to, to wrap up, I remember you talking about, uh, you know, when we first met and you did the, the first speech and, you know, talking about your mental health issues, you talked about, you know, when you were going through some, some dark times and some of the deepest, uh, or, you know, struggles that, that you've been through, you would go and buy cars and you'd spend this money and you'd think that things would get better. And we talked about it too, that footballers could be making hundreds of thousands of dollars a week, but still be struggling with a lot of things. Um, you know, but I want, the reason I bring this up is obviously buying cars didn't help. You know, you go out and buy a car and think everything's great. And then you're feeling the same way again. What would, what advice would you give to the people dealing with mental health. So obviously the people, the audience uh, that this is probably directed towards is not people that can go and buy a car, go out, you know, in five minutes and yeah. throw down 50 grand on a car, but maybe they will go buy whatever, uh, uh, Xbox, or they may go buy, you know, something for a couple hundred dollars that think, you know, they that may make them feel better. What should they be doing instead, and what advice would you give for them? You know, what would you leave them with? I think if I was looking back and I was taking my career back, I wouldn't just look for the quick fix. I'd get to the root of the the issues myself for longevity more than anything else for like my long term plan because I was looking for the quick fix. So alcohol, um, whether it's buying clothes, trainers, I was always looking for that quick fix, but it made me happy for maybe 30 to 40 minutes and I'll be miserable again. So I think I would really get to studying who I really am and getting to the, the root of my problems and trying to educate myself about that and, and also try and be positive about things. Just because you're feeling really dark at that time doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. So I always use, I always like say it's a bad day, it's not a bad life. So I kind of, just think, right, if I'm having a shitty day, make sure I don't go into then day two, just try and get my routine back on track and try and refocus to make sure that, well, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. There's always a way out. There's always something positive at the end of it. So keep working hard and you will find happiness. Yeah, that's great advice. And uh, it's so hard to identify and put your finger on like what really is the issue, right? And I feel like that's the biggest hurdle to, to overcome. And my, am I fair in saying something like that? Yeah, I think, you know, if you suffer with anxiety and I've suffered with anxiety, our, we're never going to be the same. No one's ever the same. Mm. Um, so we can't really, you know, handle that we're, all the, we're not the same. So everyone's mental health is different. Everyone's always facing these different challenges. So it's about finding what works best for us, having a routine, and getting to the bottom of it for, the, for ourselves. Yeah, that's huge advice and I hope the message and like I said to you prior to coming on I was had a had a bit of nerves because I wanted to make sure that this was shared properly and, and was gotten out there so uh, hopefully the the questions that I, I worded were were proper and we shared what was needed to be shared and uh, I want you to wrap up with 
the name of the organization again, you know, where people can maybe find you on Twitter, Instagram, and then, you know, whatever else you want to wrap up with. Yeah. So, um, my Instagram is obviously was David Cottrell 11 and, um, the online mental health courses that we provide is called the crystal matrix, which is on Instagram as well, or, um, it's crystalmatrix.com. And that is, by far, I've, I've already even done the courses. They're amazing where they just uh, reframe our minds and it's helping us. And it's £24, so I don't know what that is in dollars. So yeah, it's, it's, literally like, it's, it's literally next to, to nothing when you think of it. We're happy to go and buy a bottle of wine or something that costs more than that. So mm-hmm. why not focus on our own self-care by buying the courses is what I always say. And my foundation is, is my name, David Cottrell Foundation. So if anyone needs any tips or help along the way, then they're more than happy to um, you know email us or, or message at any time. Yeah, no, I'll make sure I add that in the bio and the description of, of the podcast as well. And when I post it on social media, sharing those those links for you. So, David, I really appreciate you coming on and doing this and sharing your story. I, I hope it gets across to to a lot of the listeners and uh look forward to seeing you back on the field here soon thank you very much i hope to see you soon